BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, we've been focused a lot on days of our lives these past few weeks, uh, ever since the possession story kicked off. But as I keep saying, there is just so much to unpack there. So in this week's issue, we have an interview with Deidre Hall about Marlena being part of the 2.0 version of this story, uh, which she first did in the mid-90s. Uh, Deidre admitted to me that she had a bit of concern because it wasn't like exactly new territory, but quickly realized that head writer Ron Carlovati had some inventive twists and turns that made this tale feel entirely new. Uh, she's also loving working so closely with Bill Hayes' Doug and Susan Seaport Hayes' Julie, who she's friends with in real life, and tells me they all went to the doctor's office together to be fitted for the devilish contact lenses that Marlene <laughs> Doug wear. Um, Deidre also pointed out that special effects have improved so much over the last 25 years. So the wind machines that were going during the levitation this week, for example, felt very real. Yeah, I was so interested in her perspective on this. And I have to say, you know, I feel the passage of time in this story, not only in the improvement of special effects, but in just the sheer awesomeness of how 25 years later, Days has so many of the original players from its first Dance with the Devil uh, still on the canvas. That means, you know, that the audience has had 25 years to grow more attached to Marlena and more invested in her, or 25 years deeper into the John Marlena relationship, which of course remains incredibly popular with fans. And as we've noted before, telling it as a true multi-generational umbrella story, as Days is doing, makes it all the more enticing uh, to me as a viewer. And speaking of Bill and Susan, they just celebrated 47 years of marriage. And I was so touched to see on Twitter not only a photo of their adorable celebration, which involved milkshakes as any celebration worth its salt should, but they also received a surprise visit from Deidre and uh, Judy Evans, who came bearing gifts. They have the most enduring daytime love story, not only on screen, but more importantly, in real life. And the fact that they are so central to the most talked about story on soaps at the moment just feels so special and so right. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, both of them have been associated with the show for over 50 years, which is incredible in and of itself. 
And I just meeting them, you cannot help but just feeling like their love story in front of you. And the way Susan speaks about Bill and Bill speaks about Susan is beyond adorable. But, um, you know, even Deidre talked about them uh, in this interview saying that when she was just starting on the show, they were across the hall from her dressing room and their door was open and Susan was on the couch reading a book and Bill was sitting at the table and she just got a real, you know, glimpse into how truly connected they were as a couple and then seeing that love story go even deeper in the years after was just so meaningful to her. I mean, I know I've mentioned this before, but Bill is 96 years old and look at what he's able to do on camera. I mean, I just love that we're seeing so much of these two. Absolutely. Uh, now on the cover of a new issue, we are previewing the search for Drew on General Hospital, which leads to a multitude of on-screen fireworks next week. I spoke to Dominic Zampronia, who plays Dante, about what happens when Dante and Sam storm Victor Cassadine's compound in search of her ex-husband. So the action in Greece is also about to include Jason and Britt, who make their way there on the hunt for Britt's missing mother, Liesl Obrecht. And Dom told me that the story reminded him of his early days on the show when the Balkan was the big baddie uh, that Dante was pursuing. Uh, I have to say that I have really enjoyed how the uh, action-adventure part of this story has been balanced with the way it has deepened the relationships among the various characters in the mix. I loved the scenes between Dante and Sam in the hotel room when they agreed to move forward in their relationship. I loved the scenes at the Taverna between Anna and Valentine when he got drunk on Uzo and uh, opened up about his feelings for her. And I especially loved Robert Scorpio's snarky reaction to the realization that Anna has gone and gotten herself emotionally entangled with Valentine. Uh, so even though our heroes have come up empty thus far and both Drew and Peter remain out of their grasp, there have been a lot of wins along the way. Well, it sounds like a tune-in week for sure. Now, our guest today is the man we've been talking about for weeks. It's Daisy's head writer, Ron Carlovati, who has not only kicked off a new possession tale, but also created a Daisy spinoff on Peacock. So there is so much to talk to him about. So let's get him on the line. Hi, Ron. Hi. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Well, you are one of our only double guests that we've ever had, and we are so excited to talk Have about Have I been on this thing before? <laughs> yeah, <just laughs> Um, well, we are, of course, going to start with the biggest story in daytime right now, The Possession. Now, the OG version of this story had concluded about a year before you started working in soaps yourself, which, by the way, happy 25th anniversary, Ron. Mm, thank um, you. Possibly today, if my mother could find her calendar. <laughs> Even better. Um, but were you aware of it at the time that it was airing, or had you seen any of it? I did not see it. But of course, I was aware of it. I don't think there was anybody in the country that did not know that Marlena Evans was possessed by the devil. I mean, <laughs> that's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so I've, I've always felt like the success of the possession story and how much attention it got from the mainstream press gave soap writers like a bit of a green light to tell more outlandish tales. Did you uh, like feel that in the air at all when you were starting your career at One Life to Live? Uh, no. <laughs> Mostly because all those crazy stories that I loved, you know, that were happening on One Life to Live in like the 80s and even into the 90s, by the time I got there, the show was starting to become more real and relatable, um, which, you know, was a mantra of the network. And, and, and my response was always like, 
why can't it be more unreal and unrelatable? <laughs> so yeah, I didn't get to come in and write that kind of stuff. And I remember even before I was the head writer, you know, writers writing some hilarious outlines where Asa was doing things that were hysterical and the network note was like, this is not a sitcom. <laughs> I was like, well, maybe it should be. Um, <laughs> Because, and my argument was always like the soaps that I grew up on and loved and like, you know, Agnes Nixon's All My Children was like characters who were hilarious, you know, like, you know, Phoebe getting drunk and like, you know, falling into the punch bowl or whatever. I mean, I don't know if that scene happened, but, but, but that kind of stuff, you know, and so when at One Life, I just kind of like slowly started to get push my little agenda, you know, until we had Rex and Bo being struck by lightning and going back into 1968. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about when you started coming up with this version of The Possession. Yeah, so even here, you know, I got to, I got this job and I'm thinking like, ooh, isn't this the show where Marlena was possessed by the devil? Well, let's go. Um, and definitely, I got the message like, that is not gonna be your first story here. Um, <laughs> So, but you know, after got, having my feet wet for four years, um, it's funny that it was not me going to them and saying, okay, now that I've been here, how about we bring the devil back to Salem? They actually came to me. It was Ken and Albert together who said, how would you feel about revisiting this storyline? Um, and it was definitely a surreal moment. Like they have to ask me to bring the devil back to town. Um, and of course, your first answer is, uh, you know, where do I sign? That said, the, it is, it's a one-liner. It's like Marlena gets possessed. Then you sit down and you're like, well, wait a minute. We actually have to tell this and characters have to react to the fact that she's possessed. And like, are we really going down this road? Are we sure we want to do this? You know? Um, and it's, look, it's, it's a polarizing thing. There's going to be people who love it. There's going to be people who like, oh, I didn't like it the first time, you know, and they let you know that. Um, so we knew it was definitely sort of a gamble, you know, like it wasn't like, oh, this is a sure thing. What we decided we wanted to try it and we wanted to do it. And, and I went back and watched on YouTube, some lovely person has like edited the whole story together, you know, and to this day, I haven't actually finished it, but like I, you know, I got into it enough to see how they were telling, it, you know, and then we started to talk about, okay, what elements of this do you absolutely need to see, want to see again, and what things feel like, oh, we don't need that, they did that the first time, right? Like, I wasn't gonna be like, oh, who's desecrating the church? It's a big mystery, because also the characters would be like, oh, it's probably Marlena. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, so, you know, we had to go about it in a different way, and we also had to go about it, like, back then, no one saw it coming, you know, here, if people, things stop, start flying off the wall, somebody's gonna be like, I wonder if the devil's back, you know? So, and then the one first big conversation was who's possessed, you know? Because one of the early thoughts was, oh, it's Sammy, it's Claire, it's Allie, it's the next generation. And weighing all the pros and cons, and because the story is so iconic, we decided, no, this needs to like, this needs to center around Marlena. And that was our call. You know. um, well, I'm curious, 
when you first got there and had this excitement at the possibility, had you played that out? Like, had you developed an actual pitch for what it would have looked like if you told that story when you first got to Days? Well, the only idea I had, because I was quickly kind of told not to go there, was this idea that the kids, that some kids, some version of kids, were going to make a movie about the possession and that somehow that was like letting the devil back in. Or I had this idea that things start happening on the set, but you think that they're publicity stunts, but maybe they're real and that kind of thing. So we did stick with that element of this movie um, when we came around the first time, though it wasn't directly the way in. Obviously, you know, the way in was our beloved um, Doug Williams. And that kind of came out of Albert and Ken saying, we'll start thinking about how you want to tell the story. And this like image came to me that it like the devil started in like sweet, kindly, innocent Doug, you know, and it made perfect sense to me like, oh, the devil thinks he's old and vulnerable and is going to slip in through Doug. And that gave me the idea because, you know, other shows have done dementia stories and I thought it would be funny if people thought we were doing a dementia story. And then we did a 180 and said, ha ha ha. You thought it was a dementia story, but really, poor Doug's possessed by the devil. Uh, <laughs> and I just loved it as the way in. But of course, then we, they said, well, look, we have to see if, if Bill is up to it and willing to do it and all that. And God bless him. You know, when we said, here's some glowing contact lenses, this 96-year-old man said, okay, go ahead, stick them in. <laughs> <laughs> well, really putting Doug and Julie into the story has been so far one of the most new masterful elements of it. So what did it mean to you to have those characters to use and just Bill and Susan in general, what they mean to the show? You know, it's great. And look, I've tried to use them as much as I can from since I've gotten to the show. Um, you know, Julie more so than Doug, we've made her sort of a fun, you know, foil for Gabby and those kind of things. She's a big mouth. She says what she thinks, you know, she's a fun character to write, you know. To me, it's just, a, it's, it's still amazing. You know, I've, I've met them in person. It's amazing to me that this couple is married on the show, married in real life, that he is 96 years old, that they are still on the show, that when I visited the studio and there he is with a full head of hair and a, a sweater and a tie on, you're like, it's just, you're amazing, you know? And, you know, when they gave them that um, award a couple of years ago at the Emmys and to watch the two of them and they, you know, you know, they wrote that, the, 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 the patter between the two of them and, and also the lovely message that they had to say and like what they stand for is, I think, incredible. Oh, absolutely. Agreed. Okay. So uh, we were talking uh, earlier about how much we love what a multi-generational tale uh, you're telling. And of course, uh, you're including Johnny and Allie and company uh, in the telling of this tale. So tell us about like bringing them into it and also just the idea, which I think is so inspired of using the Sammy Brady story as a jumping off point. Yeah. Well, again, I had that vague idea about a movie and I think Ryan Kwan pointed out that Will had written a script about Sammy's life and we thought, oh, can we use that somehow as a jumping off point? Um, which was a great idea because I love using something that was real and existed and, you know, um, instead of this coming out of nowhere. Um, so using that script, using those kids, what I love about that is that 
it they sort of stand in for people who weren't there 25 years ago who didn't watch this story who are like wait a minute marlena grandma marlena was possessed <laughs> like what are you talking about you know so you know, otherwise you have like Abe and, and John and Julie, or I guess Julie wasn't around, but like um, you have these older characters sitting around going, remember when Marlena was possessed? This way you had a fresher take of these kids going, wait a minute, she turned into a panther, you know? Um, so, and I could kind of buy that this is something that maybe wasn't talked around, talked about around the Thanksgiving table and that the kids were sort of somewhat, maybe they heard it as like an old wives tale, but they, no one seriously believed grandma Marlena was possessed. Mm -hmm. Well, you did tell me a good story about that because obviously for them not to know about it, it does seem maybe strange to some viewers, but the truth is other than I feel mentions you've done in special episodes. Yeah. Marlena's possession was really not talked about for like a quarter of a century. So what was your feeling about kind of, or your logic behind them finding out about it for the first time now? Yeah, I mean, cause we could have played it like, oh yeah, I heard that. But I always <laughs> like when characters are finding out instead of us telling you something that they already know, I like seeing people find out and get their reaction for the first time on camera. So yes, you could make the argument that they would have known, but I feel like you could also make the argument that this is something they would try to keep maybe from young kids that <laughs> grandma was possessed. I kind of felt like, yes, it came out at the time, but it was like something they probably tried to sweep under the rug. I'm so tickled by the phrase grandma was possessed. Um, I mean, some of the lines sometimes that we write are, because that's where you're like, I guess we're really doing this, you know? <laughs> like, you know. Okay, well, uh, we've got Ben and Sierra, obviously, also as a, a key players in this version of the tale. So talk us through the Rosemary's baby element at play here. Yeah, so we, again, wanted to, you know, the first time around, the devil was very much fixated, I think, on trying to corrupt Marlena and possibly corrupt John, right? You know, and who the devil thought was a priest, but wasn't a priest, but anyway. Um, and then obviously tried to screw up all these couples and, and which I, I buy into that, that love is the enemy of the devil and would want to pull people apart and make them distrust each other and all that kind of stuff. So we definitely do that. The devil is like tampering with all these couples. Um, but again, we wanted to, there to be a new element. Like, what is the devil after? First time, it seemed like really getting Marlena to crack and really getting John to maybe, you know, lose his soul over this. And so we wanted to give this like other through line, like what is the devil after? And then we came up with this idea that, you know, we have Ben and Sierra on the canvas. We wanted to go, what's the next step for this couple? We, you know, we tortured everybody with them not getting together. Now they're finally married. And we thought for this young couple, the next step would be wanting to have a baby. And then thought, and what if the devil wants that baby? <laughs> so then you get the fun of them going through the pregnancy together and all the love and the romance and, and that. But at the same time, it, they become part of the umbrella story because we find out the devil wants their child. And, and we rationalized it like, oh, for the devil, it was the perfect mix of like the genes of a serial killer. And then... On Sierra's side, these people who are good and pure and true, because it's like, oh, I don't want just an evil child. I want some inherent goodness and innocence that I can corrupt and twist around. So that's what we came up with. But what we have been is coy of exactly what the devil is going to do with this baby. Is he just gonna like push it around in a carriage? Um, 
we decided that to give away the devil's, you know, exact plan for this baby was not the point at the beginning, just knowing that the devil is after this baby. Mm-hmm. But we will get there. <laughs> okay. Well, they had some magical lovemaking this week. So <laughs> you know she's pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. Yeah, um, when, the, when the windows blow open, you know you did something right or that's wrong. Right. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Um, now, in the first story, we obviously saw Stefano with Marlena and the armoire. You've also incorporated pretty much all the Demeras into this now. You have Chad, Abby, EJ. We're going to see Anna and Tony get involved. Um, did you have any concern that you had too many characters tied into one story? No. Um, <laughs> the, mostly because I actually I thought like, oh, how come we didn't get so-and-so into this story? <laughs> I can actually, and maybe without giving away everything, like I can think of characters on the canvas who have really not had one scene that shows that they even are aware <laughs> that there's a devil possession going on in Salem. Um, and I don't want to disappoint anybody by telling them who you, who they are. Um, um, but again, like at the, like I didn't want to, f- to feel like an island and, oh, here's Marlena and Doug and Julie and John over here in this corner. And that the, that this devil's thing needs to feel like it's taking over Salem. And so slowly you see it pulls more and more people into it. Well, um, I think we all appreciate that John is like already suspicious of Marlena's behavior to your earlier point. Yeah. Uh, you know, you haven't, you haven't dumped him down just because it would be convenient to have people suspicious for longer, if you will, uh, or, you know, unaware for longer. But so was that something, an element that you thought was important, you know, to have him see that, that something was wrong from the get-go, essentially? Yeah, I mean, like watching that original story when there was, at first they didn't know it was the devil. They were saying who, they were calling the person the desecrator, who was going into the church and desecrating statues and objects and stuff. And watching Abe and um, John try to figure it out. And they were even going to Marlena, who was giving like, helping create a profile of who the desecrator might be, right? Um, The... I mean, and one thing kind of from the stupid files, like I thought they did a genius job with the story, but there's an episode where they set a trap for the desecrator. John catches Marlena in a hood in the church, turns her around and it's like, oh my God, he just caught, realizes it's Marlena. And then he's sort of like, doc, what are you doing here? <laughs> She's <laughs> like, oh, I, I was just checking on the church. And, and he's like, you know, the, don't, you gotta be careful. The desecrator could be around here. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> and then I think he starts, she starts strangling him or something. But anyway, though, he did get onto her obviously, but um, the, I really did feel like, okay, I am gonna get a ton of crap if, John, if she's running around devilizing and John is like, I wonder what's happening, you know? So it was like, all right, unlike the other story, John is gonna get on to her pretty darn quick or everybody's gonna take me to task. Mm-hmm. But then what happens to John? <laughs> Ooh. Spoiler alert. Um, well, you did say in the beginning of this that there were certain things that you really wanted to do or things that you could do again or maybe things you just didn't need to do again. Um, yep. Obviously, we saw the levitation happen this week in very similar pajamas to the first time around, which I thought was... Yep, those pajamas. Yeah, those purple satin, never get old. Um, what were some other things, and you don't have to maybe spoil, yeah. but were there certain things in mind that you had? For definitely this? think of like, oh, what were the big moments in that story and certain things you would maybe want to see? 
I mean, I would say the levitation being probably number one, and that's the thing where you might say, oh, they've did it before, should we do it? And they're like, of course she has to levitate, you know? Of course she does, you know? Um, I will say we did not bring a live panther onto the set during a pandemic. Um, and, but there will be a nod to the panther element of the story. Um, you know, like I like to try to have like wink winks to certain things, even if we can't totally recreate them and execute them. Um, the there are other moments, there are other things that weren't in the original that Marlena will do, um, some of which in the very near future. Um, so we really did have a ball like, OK, what elements can we see? And Albert kind of said to us, our producer, like, okay, you know, we can't break the bank, but I want to spend money on certain judiciously at certain moments. So what are your big, you know, set pieces? Okay, she levitates. Okay, she blows up. No, she's not blowing anything up. <laughs> uh, but those kind of things. And he was like, let's make a little list so we just don't get crazy every week with her flying around, you know. Um, what can we do and not do? And so we picked very carefully a series of things that she does between now and the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, okay, it's one thing to have this idea to start plotting it. It's another thing to actually turn on your TV and there it is. So tell us what it was like for you to see the scenes of Doug and Marlena in her office. He said he'd been waiting 25 years to see her again because Steph and I both, I think, had chills when we watched that. Yeah. yeah. No, I was, I mean, obviously we wrote it. We knew it was coming. You know, I think, um, either Deidre or Albert, somebody texted me a picture of him with the glowing contacts on and I'm like, we are really doing this. Um, <laughs> the, but to watch that episode and see that voice coming out of little Doug was like, it was chilling, it really was. And I just thought the actors did an incredible job. They committed, the audience seemed engaged with it right away, mostly because you do care about Doug. Um, I did have my father who watches the show religiously call me and say, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and I was like, well, and he's not aware that this story happened on the show before. So he uh, okay. not, he has no reference point for this. And he's like, he goes, I'm calling up to say like, has my son lost his mind? And <laughs> I realized what holiday is coming up? Halloween. He's like, it's all not real. It's all going to be revealed to be a Halloween prank. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no, close but wrong. I'm like, this is really happening. And I think for him, it was a foreign thing because he didn't know that this story had happened before and was like, why would my son have bring the devil to town? What was Mr. Carlovati doing from 1994 to 1995? That's he was what so I would busy like to know, that he actually. didn't know. Yeah, he was, well, you know, watching old episodes of One Life to Live because he knew I was about to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love that Ron Sr. doesn't get spoilers. He really does not. Them, right? You know, occasionally I will say he does Google things like sometimes and he'll be like, what, you know, why is Marlena leaving the show? I'm like, stop reading whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, why is she leaving? Tell us. He does call often like when if the phone rings and it's like on the hour, I know he's just watched the show. Right. And he'll be like, you know. Are Kristen and Brady going to get back together? No, don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What it is often question is, is this situation going to resolve itself? <laughs> I'm like, keep, just keep watching. 
Oh my gosh. Um, now, I feel like when Mara and I first started talking about that this story was happening, we said it's just so in your wheelhouse um, in the way that you like to tell stories and you have a very fertile imagination. Um, so was there anything that you pitched that you couldn't do because it was too over the top? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I got to say to their credit that like, as we were telling the story, they didn't really say no to anything. You know, I tried to censor myself to be like, okay, let's not go, you know, too crazy. You know, her head is not going to spin around. I'll tell you that much. But um, I remember because um, my high school teacher, who was a Jesuit priest, was in The Exorcist. He's one of the priests in The Exorcist. Wow. And he told us at the time, that the writer of the book, William Peter Blatty, the one thing about the movie that he did object to was the head turning around because he said, you know, they based a lot of it on, on a real thing that happened to him. I think it was a little boy and not a girl. And he said, basically, everything, what the author had said was, everything that happened to this little girl could physically happen to a body and sometimes even have a physiological explanation. But they said if the head turned all the way around, it would break her neck and she would die. You know, like it, it, it was like, it was, even though it was the devil, they said it was still a human body that could only be, you know, subjected to too much. And they said that he objected to the thing, but the director was like, no, we have to do this. And of course it's like one of the most famous movie, you know, moments in, movie history. <laughs> I love the parsing the thin line between like plausible right. and no, completely implausible. Right. Um, so uh, is there anything that like you had in mind speaking to, to uh, Albert's offer to, you know, spend some cash and put some effort into this stuff, but within reason, yeah. like, is there, was there anything that was like financially just like a no-go because of what it would cost for special effects or props or sets or anything like that? No, but there are a couple things coming up that, you know, that did cost a little bit of, like in yesteryear's standards, it's probably like, oh yeah, they could do that every week. But uh, there are some things that happen that we do not do on a regular basis and did cost some money and and they were willing to 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 really try to make those work. That's why he said, pick a handful of things you want to see, don't go crazy, and I'll try to execute those. Um, well, have you had any moments along the way where you're like, oh, is this too much? Like, is this too over the top? Yeah, like the first day. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you just have that fear. I'm like, oh, is the show becoming passions? You know, and, and just because what you're reading is so outrageous, you know? Um, and look, what we tried to do and what was true the first go around too, is it is a lot as yes, she's possessed by the devil. There's no getting around that, but it is a lot about the love stories. It is about the couples. Like you'll see, you know, what happens to Abe and Paulina, what she's trying to do to Ben and Sierra, like what the devil tried to, you know, make people doubt each other. And, and it is still an aspect of what we do all the time, which are love stories. And that's what really the, this what this story is. And I sort of say too, like, you know, the audience also loves its villains, you know, like, you know, um, Stefano, Faison, uh, Orpheus, uh, you know, Helena Cassidyne, whatever, like, the audience loves like a big villain. And to me, I'm just treating the devil like any other, you're just watching another villain, like an Orpheus, like whoever come in, 
and try to ruin everybody's life and see if these people can fight back and defeat this person. You know, he just happens to be Satan. Well, I have a two-part question. One, were you at all bracing yourself for the audience reaction to this tale? And then part two is, you know, what do you say to people who maybe like don't want to watch this story, think it's too dark or, you know, not their cup of tea for whatever. Yeah, I mean, look, every story people, I mean, like Beyond Salem was something where I was hard pressed to find people saying something negative. Like it seemed like to me, a pretty much out of the park, like success. And, and, and I had to dig to find someone say something bad about it. And now if people start sending me with the bad, you know, what they didn't like, but, <laughs> but that was, that's rare. Obviously as a soap writer, for every person that tells you how much they love it is someone who tells you how much they hate it and how stupid it is and they're never watching the show back. Um, so I knew we would get that. And, and again, you don't know how much to take it. Are they telling me this, but they're glued to the screen? Or did they really turn it off? And, and I'm not challenging anyone to really turn it off if you didn't turn it off. But of course, I want people to watch the show. But essentially, this is the story we're presenting. You know, it's not going to change. We wrote it. It's happening. I hope you like it. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. But I, it's hard for me to understand what, the, maybe you have a religious objection. This story is not meant to be real. <laughs> you know, it is a callback to a classic story of the show. We're not really conjuring up Satan. You can be a religious person and still enjoy the story. Sometimes I try to get at what the objection is. Are, are people upset because it, they think it's going to disrupt the, the normal show that they love? Like, what is the, so threatening about this story? And I try to understand that. And that's why I say, like, why is it so different from, yes, I realize there's a supernatural element. Her eyes are glowing. That may not be your cup of tea. But again, it's a classic. So Marlena's got a secret. Who's going to figure it out? And how many people is she going to bring down along the way? And when are they going to, you know, how they, how's John going to save his beloved Marlena? Like, to me, it's a classic soap story that happens to have originated in the bowels of hell. <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, as your dad pointed out, Halloween is coming. We're going to see the holidays after that. So what can you tease about where this story is going to go? Okay. Well, Marlena goes to town on Halloween. I'll just say that. <laughs> the Mardevil, I should say. Um, the, I mean, one of the things, too, from the beginning of the story was when I watched the original, you know, because one of my first concepts was, okay, the devil's in Doug. And then when they get to this session with Marlena, the devil jumps into Marlena, and now Mar Marlena's possessed. When I went back then and started watching the original story, Marlena, the devil was like in and out of Marlena for weeks <laughs> before she was like really possessed. And I was like, oh, was I supposed to do that? So, <laughs> so we, we did not rush to her being 100% possessed. Uh, you know, it took percent, did I say percent? 100%. So the... Anyway, we did do this little arc, which I know is like confusing for some people where it seems like, well, is she aware of what just happened? Or is her mind just a little cloudy? Like what happened last night? You know, um, but we wanted to move that process pretty quick. And so you sort of see like post levitation, you know, she's pretty possessed. And um, 
Um, oh, so then, you know, Halloween coming, and we usually do do some kind of Halloween episode. You know, sometimes it's a fantasy episode. This year we're like, okay, we have the devil in town. We do not need to do a fantasy, right? <laughs> like, and it was a little like, okay, what is Marlena going to do on Halloween? And we do have a lot of fun because, yes, this is a time when people are in costumes and maybe you can get away with a little more right out in people's faces that you wouldn't be able to get away with otherwise. People are expecting ghouls and goblins to be running around because it's Halloween. But let's just say she has a field day. (laughs) (laughs) It's the favorite holiday. Um, So uh, the possession, uh, while huge, is not the only huge thing that has happened this year with the show. You also got a two-year pickup. So. Tell us what you know that means to you, and how does having that security uh, affect your storytelling, if at all? Yeah, I mean that was obviously huge for us. I mean, since I got my job and got to the show, the show had already been getting one year at a time pickup. So I walked into a situation where, oh, the writers have to stop writing like in January because we don't know if there's going to be more episodes. You know, it was one of these. I didn't realize what that would be like because I've worked for ABC shows. The network owns those shows. So you just keep going until they say they don't want to make the show anymore. Um, Here, we need NBC to tell us, yes, we want more. And the show is budgeted year by year. So once I write episode blah, 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 I can't write the next one because that's not paid for yet. You know, so everyone, cast, crew, producers, writers, you know, is hanging on the edge of their seat every year waiting for them to give the green light. And unfortunately, it's created a situation where, you know, we've had to tell everybody to stop. We could lose actors. We could, they were free to go somewhere else. Like that has been a big problem, like where there's a break, you know, this getting this two-year pickup means I, we don't have to stop writing. We don't have to stop production. We don't have to, we can keep actors under contract. You know, we know the show is going to be here for two years. It's, it's bigger, I think, for production because they can really plot the money over two years, how they're going to produce X number of episodes. They can build a production schedule that goes further out, plan their dark weeks and their vacations and all that. For the writers, theoretically, it allows me to plot two years worth of story, but spoiler alert, (laughs) that doesn't always happen. Um, I can't tell you I know where the show is going for the next two years. And, you know, maybe people might argue that I should. um, But if try to do this job and see if you can do that. Um, The uh, but. But anyway, it does allow us to plot out going, Okay, we can do this nine month pregnancy. We know the show's not going anywhere. We know this is going to be around. Um, you know, I'm, I'm joking a bit. Yes, we can make some long range plans. Do I have the show written and out for two years? No. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing, you know, in a lot of ways, it gives you creative freedom to make decisions along the way and other good story ideas occur to you. And, um, that said, we are in a very solid place. You know, we were able to run with this story, knowing that the show wasn't going to come to a screeching halt. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, as you mentioned, Beyond Salem also happened this year. So tell us about the origin of that and how it all came together. Um, Yeah, that was very sudden and very fun and very crazy to get written and done and on TV so fast. So um, 
Albert and Ken call. I get these calls from Albert and Ken. How'd you like a devil possession story? <laughs> they often call and say, are you sitting down? Um, so they called and said, are you sitting down and said, the network is asking for five episodes, a five episode mini series to air exclusively on Peacock. Um, they don't want it to interfere with the regular show. They want it to be like added enjoyment of the show. They don't want to tell their audience, you have to get Peacock or you won't understand what's going on on, you know, channel four. Um, the, and I was like, okay. And they're like, what, what do they want it to be about? And they're like, well, that's up to you. <laughs> um, but they had some suggestions. They knew that our show was written past this period and they didn't want to mess up our show. They suggested guest stars. They suggested people from Salem that we might want to see that have left town. Um, that's how we kind of came up with this idea of beyond Salem because it didn't hamper us and tie us to what was going on in Salem. And so we said, all right, what if we're visiting people outside of Salem? And that's what kind of started this idea. And then we we're like, well, how do you connect all those stories? And then the Alamanian peacock was born. <laughs> <laughs> like, so how did you decide who to bring back since there's such a, a wide constellation yeah. of character, you know, beloved characters who are yeah. in Salem right now? I mean, when we came up with the idea of like some kind of caper and the peacock and all that, then obviously like the ISA comes to mind, you know, um, Shane Donovan comes to mind. Um, and then Billy Reed came to mind. And we also, the, um, you know, the network liked that because there was some synergy involved. They liked the idea of Lisa Rinna because there's some synergy with her being on, on the Bravo show, on The Real Housewives. And... I thought it would be fun to see her undercover. We thought about, okay, stolen gems makes you think of Princess Gina, you know, and then thought, oh, Sierra thinks it's her mother that Hope has been turned into Gina and they spin her around and oh my God, it's Billy Reed, you know, undercover. Um, so we had little ideas and then started to tie it together. On the, on the regular show, Ben and Sierra were, had just left for their honeymoon. So we're like, oh, we could show them in New Orleans. Um, um, the network suggested they would like to see Will and Sonny. So we're like, okay, we got Phoenix. And then we thought about Austin and Carrie because of the Europe, you know, the European connection. And that would be fun to show Europe. And, um, and that brings Tony and Anna into it, which is fun. Um, so that's how Zurich kind of came about. We knew Paulina came from Miami and was rich. And we thought, oh, there's another location where we can see how she lives, you know, in her glitzy uh, apartment on Star Island. Um, so it was, it all just kind of like, they're like dominoes. Like you think of one idea and then it, and then you're like, okay, there's six gems like in the NBC logo and we're going to make a sapphire and a ruby and an emerald. And, um, so we just like went to town with it. Mm -hmm. Well, it obviously was a big success. There was so much positive reaction to it. You know, how did you feel when you saw it? And I, positive reaction. Yeah, no, I loved it. And I got to say, I was nervous because it's one of those things, you know, there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on it. Yes, every, a lot of people watch our show, but it's on every single day. These are five things, five episodes that we're telling you are special. And you know, there's going to be an extra set of judgy eyes on this thing, right? So I was nervous. Like I knew we had a lot of great, great elements, but we also had a short amount of time to do it. I mean, essentially they shot it during a week when they should have been shooting eight episodes of Days of Our Lives and instead shot this, you know? So it, you know, it put us behind. We wrote those episodes when we should have been writing six more episodes of, of the regular show. So, 
you know, we had to fall behind a little bit, you know, and, but luckily, you know, there was some extra money for this. So we knew we could have like extras and, oh, a little, maybe a little location shoot. And, you know, without going completely insane in that time frame, there was a lot we could do, but I just was nervous. Like, is it going to live up to the hype, you know? Um, and so then to watch it air and see people's excitement and see people tweeting about it when, you know, an hour after the thing dropped on Peacock, you know, where I was holding my breath to be like, oh, that was boring. You know, <laughs> I was thrilled to see people how much they loved it and how engaged they were. And it made me who, you know, was watching it, you know, I was watching the rough cut along the way where there's no music and editing or anything and you're a nervous wreck. And then you watch the completed thing with everybody else and you're like, oh, this is pretty damn good, you know? <laughs> um, and the way it came together, and I gotta say, like, production went all out, and in, in, and I know it probably almost killed them, but like, you know, to see those guys come out and drag, and it was the the makeup and the hair and the clothes and the dancing, like they put time and effort into that into this thing, and and even and I wanted like call out like the people at Peacock, like they promoted the heck out of this, and like when they sent us the trailer, I mean, I probably just kept clicking and watched it like a hundred times before it went out. I was like, the the visuals, the music, the, I was like, I would watch this. <laughs> and then you get nervous. I'm like, I hope it's as good as the trailer. Um, but I, it was a great, great experience. Like, yes, everybody was like on the floor sobbing. <laughs> um, and, you know, it almost killed everybody, but, it we had a lot of fun writing it and and yes even though there was pressure it was having to come up with that story that could have a beginning a middle and end feel like salem yet feel like something beyond salem you know it was a lot and i think we pulled it off well given how much everybody loved it how well it did do you think we could see more iterations well, I am definitely hopeful. I mean, what I got, like, look, I don't know that they released their numbers or we know how many people watched it, but we were told it was a very positive response. You know, they can obviously gauge who signed up for Peacock so they could watch this, right? And so, you know, meanwhile, we're just chugging along, trying to get our regular the show done. And like I said, we've fallen behind production-wise a little bit and are trying to catch up to that. But in the meantime, you know, we are very open to with Peacock, comes calling that we would be, if we could pull it off, that we would be thrilled to do more. You won't send them to voicemail. I will not send them to voicemail. I will pick up that call. <laughs> well, as we mentioned at the top of this podcast, you are marking 25 years since you started in daytime. So for anyone who doesn't know your origin story and didn't listen to the first podcast you did with us, uh, you were a lawyer in Washington, D.C. You were inspired by your co-worker, who is now a famous novelist, David Baldacci, to follow your passion to become a writer as well. And you wound up living on couches uh, in New York City with people's homes until you scored a job quite by happenstance in the writer's office at One Life to Live, where you eventually became an Emmy-winning head writer. And a lot of career success thereafter. So looking back now um, to your 1996 self, could you ever have imagined that you would A, still be in daytime, have trophies under your belt as you do, and have accomplished as much as you have? 
Uh, no, I mean, it is ironic that it is like, I was trying to, like I said, I got hired as the writer's assistant at the end of September of 1996, so 25 years ago. And I know I didn't start until slightly after that. Um, on, I'm probably on a Monday. So I know today was a Monday. And so I, either, you know, last Monday or this Monday was my 25th uh, anniversary of being in this business when I was the little writer's assistant. Um, could I have expected that I would still be here in all of this? A absolutely not. I mean, it was the kind of thing though that I don't even think I was thinking in, like I had, I was more like had this tunnel vision of trying to get hired at this show without even maybe even thinking about where that would go, how long would that last? It was just more of the single-minded goal of, I wanna work at One Life to Live and how am I gonna somehow make that happen? And, you know, one of my clearest memories is when I was called in to be interviewed for that assistant job and got out of a taxi in front of 66th and Columbus, that building and walking in that door and then when you walk in, there's a flight of stairs that you have to go up to where the producer's office are. And then up the stairs are all these stills of One Life to Live over the years. You know, there's like Vicky and Dorian fighting. And, and it, I can almost like picture it like, like it was yesterday. Like, like the overwhelming kind of like that feeling of I'm really here <laughs> and I'm walking up these steps looking at Tina and Vicky and Dorian and Asa and Bo and Nora and it was unreal it really was surreal it was surreal is what it was and like um and then I get the job and um you know and 25 years later I'm still doing this and honestly it is incredible especially cuz we have seen so much change and and you know here we are with four shows on the air and I don't know how many were there when I began, but you know, around 10 or so. And, you know, and having been the last one in New York watching Guiding Light go off as the world turns go off, all my children moved to California. Suddenly, you know, we're here holding on in New York. And, and, you know, there was something special about that. Even when we did get canceled that we were the last man standing in, in New York city. Um, and that was like, obviously very sad for us personally, but, I mean, I just remember what that was. That was also, it was jobs for people who work on Broadway. That was like people who are struggling actors, instead of just being a waiter or bartender, you could be a, a, a nurse or a cop or a, or a whatever during the day at One Life to Live and then go to your Broadway show at night. Or, you know, it was a whole, we were part of a whole thing there that doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. Now, yes, there's more, television production that came back to New York City and other shows and other ways. But like, you know, at the end, at the end, you thought like, oh, this is it, you know. Um, um, but I'm lucky enough to be part of one of these four that is still on. And what is so nice is to see this little resurgence in interest in our shows that Peacock wants to do a special or, um, you know, that we're still in the conversation and that we're still in the news. And, you know, there's, Deidre Hall still doing her thing after all these years. It, it's an amazing feeling, you know. The other night I was, I, I don't have cable and I was watching this free TV app on my TV and it's got old game shows. 
And I turn on the TV and it was all soap stars and there's Deidre in the center square. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and you know, there's, there's Wayne Northrup next to her. There's Leanne Hunley, like gorgeous. And like, it was, it's incredible because that feels like such a throwback, but I'm like watching it like, no, I still work with these people. <laughs> I'm texting Deidre like, hey, you're on Hollywood Squares. <laughs> um, so, it, it, it's incredible. It really is. Obviously, your career is is not done. Far from it. But looking back at the twenty five years, is there a story that like you would be comfortable saying having be considered the signature Ron Carlovati soap story that you've told? Um, I guess if I had to say one, it's probably Vicky goes to Paris. I think. Um, because for me, that was an element of doing, it, it's a few things. It's doing something a little outside of just the regular storytelling that we did every day. We took Vicky to a different town where she had a new life and that was something fresh and fun and exciting about that. Got to create some new characters that she got to interact with. I love seeing the rich lady being a waitress. Um, and also of course, because I'm a kid who grew up watching every TV show um, at the time, I was completely copying it from Alice, you know, and it was, you know, it was Flo and Vera and, and, and Mel and Alice. And so I got to also pay homage to like a show that I loved when I was a kid. So it had all of that. Um, Erica loved it, which of course was, was very like, that's a nice feeling when the actor tells you this is one of the favorite stories they've ever done in their career. You know, that's very, very gratifying. Um, and it was fun. It was fun. And what we were able to do was keep it going long enough to weave the other stories into it. So, you know, the story with Marcy and her baby, which was a major story of like Marcy had the wrong kid that wasn't hers, you know, to take her eventually to Texas where she's like hiding out as a waitress um, and keeps missing Vicky was was really fun. We were able to create the Buchanan Ranch down the road. So we were, had a lot of Buchanans that happened to be there too. Like to be able to take everybody from Lambview, Pennsylvania and suddenly have them all in Paris, Texas was, was really, really fun, you know? And, you know, and there are other stories too, but that one definitely has all the elements of kind of like a soap story that I love to tell. Um, well, is there any that you look back now and you think, I could have done that a little differently that you would love to tell again, like start from scratch? That I could fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get a do-over. Fix, do-over on any of the shows. Yeah, well, like, you know, maybe sometimes we don't have the, because we move quickly and you're so like, I got to get this out and I got to get six more shows and you have an idea for maybe something shocking and you're like, let's just do it. And you don't think through all the consequences of that story. You know, you like, and you know, with the benefit of the hindsight, it's it's not that I would necessarily, there's certain things like, I wish there were things that I could address or fix or, you know, um, I'll just give an example of like the way Marty Saybrook story ended. I mean, when you look at Marty Saybrook in the big picture and she was history making in a lot of ways, this character and went through something horrific and came out the other side, you know, yes, it was my job for as the show went on for years and years and years to tell other stories that may or may not have served her character. 
but I wish I had more time or maybe could go back and, you know, at the time it made sense to me that, that Marty had mental health struggles and, and we had her do some pretty like outrageous things. I had thoughts and plans of trying to bring that story for full circle and redeem her and, and, and we weren't really able to do it and we didn't have Torsten and, um, you know, look, like we told a controversial story between her and, um, Trevor, um, I'm not saying I wouldn't still do that story. I found elements of that story really, really intriguing of, you know, this man thinking if I could get the person I hurt the most in the world to see me differently and love me, I might feel redeemed. And, and I don't think that's a bad arc for him, but we could have done better service to her, I think. Um, and so if I had the chance to tell that story again, I maybe would like explore it slightly differently or make sure that Marty got a certain due. Um, you know, when she started stabbing people and <laughs> everything got a little crazy. And look, every self character can do these things and be redeemed. And I just wish I had more time with Marty. If, if today is kicking off the second 25 years, of your career. Is there like anything that's on the to-do list still, the bucket list for your storytelling? I'd like to do a mask, split personality. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> a person with a split personality that wears a lot of different masks. I have not done that. Um, Combining the masks of all worlds. And I've done split personalities, but I haven't done one where the personalities each wear a different mask. And I think that would be good. The, no, like, look, there are, I don't know what they are, but I'm like, we do rack our brains for what could we do that we haven't done? That's what I loved about the time jump, you know, having to sit and figure out, okay, what changes have these characters gone through? What did you miss? Who could we pair together? You know, who became a nun? You know, um, that was Fun because we, you know, we're doing, we're getting, cranking this stuff out day after day, week after week. And it's fun for us to do something different. Writing the possession story was fun because it's been different. Writing Beyond Salem was fun because it was something different, you know? Um, not to take away from just the regular show and the stories we tell every day, but, you know, and it's been on for over 55 years are like, well, what can we, what else can we do? Well, speaking of that, do you have any personal goals for 2022, which will be 2023 in Salem? <laughs> oh, I guess what my goal is to like keep the show going, may, you know, continue the momentum that we have so that maybe they want to pick it up for another two years. You know, I know for Ken, maybe hitting the milestone of 60 years is important to him. And whether I'm here or not here, I think that's like, I would root for this show to to be on at year 60. And and the and the shape that it's in, I don't see any reason why it can't be. Well, we look forward to seeing all of that and more and thank uh -huh. you so much for all your time today and hopefully you'll third times a charm we'll get you again. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait to see what we'll be talking about the next time. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. We hope to talk to you again soon. Bye. Thank you, you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Ron Carlavati for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.